0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 76. In today's episode, Andy's going to talk about books and culture, I think. Is that the right way of describing it? Well...
1: Not art. this time. This one's art. Art so, and culture. Yep. I you was res- so close. Like, how do you, yeah, what do you do with art? I'll give a quick preview at the end.
0: Just don't walk over here and slap me, please.
1: I won't. Oh, I won't. will I? Never mind. You will? We don't need. I was going to say I will, but. Silly cultural reference. You ever
0: been to West Philadelphia?
1: Oh, boy. Born and raised. Oh, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: Well, anyway, after that
1: nonsense. Ha- half our you, listeners are if, hearing the song in
2: their head right the, now. Yeah, and if you're totally lost, it's okay. I am too, so it's pop, good.
0: We don't make a lot of pop culture references, but when we do, they're they're spicy. Yeah, they that are, was they really slap spicer. you right across the face. They just smack I have a you right clue what you're talking about. <laughs> like a rock. Right Can we do books right and business? <laughs> we have some thinklings business to tend
2: to.
1: Books and business. <laughs> okay, I'll go first this time. So it's been a crazy busy uh, last couple of weeks, and so I haven't done done a lot of reading. So I've been listening to a podcast, which I'll talk about next week for my books and business. But this week. I'm going to highlight a book that I really enjoyed for those of you who are interested in apologetics. This one's up your alley. If you're not interested in apologetics and you're interested in biographies, this will be up your alley. If you're not interested in biographies or apologetics, but you're interested in the world that CS Lewis came from, but like 50 to hundred years later, this one will appeal to you. This is book is called the faith of Christopher Hitchens by Larry Taunton. Uh, Who's Christopher Hitchens, guys? Charlie can't handle this. <laughs> Who's Hitchens? He's an uh, atheist.
0: I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. We have a play, a drama. Faith. drama oh, I thought drama you were laughing at me. Never mind. Okay. Okay. And uh, I'll just. There's, oh, there's one student who had asked for a ride tonight to practice, <laughs> and one of the other person said, "No, walk, peasant." And oh I just wow. thought that was really funny,
1: <laughs> especially with, with the play that actually yeah. fits the you know. Yeah, that's 18, pretty 13. good. So, back he's to He's an the- <laughs> atheist. Christopher
0: Hitchens is an yep. atheist.
1: Yep, he's one of the four horsemen of the new atheists.
0: It's like the bad boy.
1: Yeah, he is, but he died in 2011. Um, but of he the was four was the bad boy. He was. So now you've got the angry man, Dawkins basically. So Wasn't there a movie Bad Boys? Uh, what you are going to do? No, there's also a movie that Hitchens was in with Doug Wilson called Collision. I highly recommend it. So anyways, I'm highlighting this book tomorrow in chapel. I'm doing a presentation on new atheism. So the day this airs on FBBC's chapel website, we'll have a talk on atheism. Uh, this book is about an atheist. And why I'm highlighting it is because Christopher Hitchens grew up Anglican like C.S. Lewis did. and He walked away from Christianity like Lewis did. Hitchens's brother also walked away from Christianity as an atheist. His brother walked back and got saved later in life. Hitchens did not, and so they dubbed him the Battling Brothers for a while. Uh, so Hitchens, throughout his life, was the bad boy of atheism. He was like angry. He was really funny. He's my actually my favorite, if I had to pick a favorite. He's more entertaining than all the rest. Um, but Taunton knew him personally. Taunton's also a, sort of an apologist, uh, cultural guy in evangelicalism. And so in this book, after he died, Uh, he published his friendship with Lewis or with uh, Hitchens. And he says this, he says, you see in Christopher Hitchens, one manifestation. uh, It was like the people in the room, he's at this place where there's a bunch of leftists. He's like, he was leftist. He was sympathetic to Martha Marxist. He was a militant atheist. He says, but in another more carefully guarded and secret book, Hitchens was something altogether different. And you might say, what do you mean two books? well, he points out that Lewis, or I'm sorry, I keep saying Lewis, Hitchens' life is like a guy with two books. So over-the-road truckers used to have mileage books that they would keep so that they could prove they weren't driving more than they should legally. So you'd have one book that if you got pulled over, you handed it to the officer or at the way station. Then you'd have another book that's the actual mileage and time you've been driving. And so Taunton points out that Hitchens would keep two books. He had this book that was his public persona as an atheist. He was 100% committed. He would attack anyone. He would never give an inch because he was fully convinced. But privately, Hitchens actually formed a number of deep friendships with Christians and Christian apologists. So if you know the name Doug Wilson, he and Hitchens were really good buddies. Uh, Larry Taunton, good friends. Um, John Lennox, well-known apologist, very good friend. And so when he gets diagnosed with cancer later in life, he has a Bible study through the book of John with Larry Taunton, and he's asking all kinds of serious questions. He does not look like the hardened exterior atheist. So what's interesting about this book is that it shows that not everyone who comes out strongly in favor of a position is always as convinced as they communicate. So that's, I think, what the best thing about this book was, is if you meet someone who's an atheist and they're just railing on you and they're not given an inch, as a Christian youth, you might think, I would only speak like that if I had no doubts at all. And so you can think, oh man, maybe something's wrong. But this book demonstrates that many people talk um, more confidently than they really are. I, f- I like it also, he, Taunton starts the book off with a Blaise Pascal quote, and I'm a big Blaise Pascal fan. Pascal says this, he says, men despise religion. They hate it and they fear that it is true. So it's interesting. I think that captures some of the new atheism and atheism in general. So anyways, I really enjoyed this book. I would rate it really high, except I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. So I'm going to give it like a five. I'd probably say it's up at like a six or a seven easy. Um, But I think since it's kind of a niche book, I'd say it's a five. Highly recommend it.
2: So when you're talking about Hitchens, I think of Hitchens as being a scoffer. So as I think through a proverbial terminology, you have the the wise man, the simple, the fool, and the scoffer. Uh, The persona of Hitchens as the scoffer is the atheist, but now you're entering a different aspect of his life where he seems teachable, almost like the simple that's pursuing truth.
1: Any input on that? Yeah, I do think that the analogy Taunton uses of the two books I think would even apply there. He's like two parts of the fool. So he is a scoffer. If you, if you just look up like Hitchens comedy acts, he's just, you can't like some of it's totally inappropriate, but he derides religion. He hates it. And he's really good with words. He's a journalist and a writer by trade. So he uses those barbed rhetorical shots at the same time. He's He has this, especially in this book, but you even see it in the movie Collision with Doug Wilson. Collision is a book tour. So Hitchin writes, God is not great. And then Doug Wilson disagrees with him on Christianity Today. And they go back and forth in a six email exchange. They each post six times. And then they say, hey, we should write this into a book and make a documentary. And so the book is, uh, is God good for the world or something like that? And they both write chapters to it. And then they make a documentary of their book tour. Now the book tour, Wilson says this in the documentary, he says Hitchens could have done a book release with New York liberal atheists and caviar and wine and all that. He says, but he wanted to go on a debate tour. And so that's what we decided to do. So they go on these debate, they debate at uh, somewhere at Harvard. It's like a bar near Harvard, Harvard at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary and then at King's College in... London. No, it's the one it's over the one in like Pennsylvania or something. Okay. All that to say. Um, and in it they debate. So at the very end of collision, Hitchens says they're in the back of a limousine and him and Wilson are talking. And he says to Wilson, he says, I don't think this is on tape. I don't think at least I don't think it is. He said, I was sitting at a table with Richard Dawkins and uh, some other guys, and we were talking about what's the hardest question you come up you come up against with Christians. And he said, I think we all agree it's the fine-tuning argument, the Goldilocks argument. Like if the universe is just like a 1% off in its cosmological contents, actually he's like, not even that, like a hair off, then nothing, no humans, no life, no nothing. He's like, you have to wrestle with it. And then he said, Dawkins said something, he said something like, sometimes we ask the question, what if we could Really wipe out Christianity. we could wipe out all religion, and there'd be no one else, no one left to argue with, no one left to believe there'd just be one person left. and I've done really well, and I know I could make them convinced that there was no God. I wouldn't do it. Huh. I wouldn't do it. And Dawkins looks at him, he's like, "What do you mean you wouldn't do it? And Hitchens just says, "I don't know. I couldn't do it. I, I, it's not that there would be no one to argue with. It's not that there'd be no one left to argument argue with though it would be, but I, I just I can't quite there's something about it. I couldn't do it. I'd seen that statement and I wondered like, why would you, if you're really convinced this is wrong, why would you, why Uh wouldn't you? And then this book comes out like later and I'm like, ah, so I I think, I don't know. I think humans are complex and I think the issue is they're suppressing what they know is true. Yeah. And I think Hitchens was asking questions about that. Yeah. What's the author's name? Larry Taunton. How's that spelled? Like taunt and then O-N. Not like Taunton. Uh no, not a tauntaun. Otherwise, it'd be a u a u, right? Oh, okay, it's, I was, I was, yeah.
0: that's what I was hearing no. in my mind. No, and if you don't know what a tauntaun is, <gasps> I have some '80s movies for you. Oh, you're.
1: <laughs> it is. It does. So you could mispronounce it as tauntaun.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Tim.
1: Take it away. Uh okay, so uh the book I've I've brought is
2: the, the biggest story Bible storybook by Kevin DeYoung and illustrated by Don Clark. Uh, The Crossway has produced the biggest story, Bible, story, Bible, storybook. And what this is, it goes through the entire story of the Bible. This book is actually really, really big. My daughter is six years old and she wanted a book. Um, And she's at that age where it's really challenging because she doesn't read very well yet, Uh, but she reads well enough that she can cream through like the little kid books Uh, so I, I really couldn't find anything for her. And then I saw this one and I wanted to get to know it a little more. So I just picked it up and, uh, we are reading it together. So I kind of help her read one page and then I read the rest of the pages, but it's divided by chapters. Uh, so chapter eight goes through Genesis 18 and 19 with the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is written to children. Uh, I'm going to just read a paragraph here. We've been hearing a lot about God's promises lots of promises, and all of these promises are good. But they aren't always good news, at least not for those who think God's ways are bad. You see, God doesn't just promise blessing for his friends. He also promises punishment for his enemies. That's an important part of the story if we want the biggest story to be God's story, and not the story we invented and made just the way we like it. I thought that was a very interesting and good way to introduce the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God is the one that's in control and punishes sin, uh, to children. Uh, So that's just the first paragraph of chapter 8, which spans four pages. They don't get into the whole lot and his daughter's type of uh, issue there in this text, but just the Sodom and Gomorrah section. They end this section with a prayer, and the prayer of this one is, Dear God, please show us our sins. Lead us to hate our sins and forgive our sins in Christ. Amen. And so it's just always a short like two-sentence prayer, but a lot of them do focus on sin and God and exalting God. I wish I'm really grateful for. Uh, Too often, especially with children, we de-emphasize sin, we de-emphasize punishment. The book doesn't seem to do that it really seems to call sin, sin, and then exalting God for his uh, faithfulness and deliverance, even when we sin. Uh, so that's a, a big component that I've seen so far. We've read through the section on Genesis so far, and uh, we're going to continue working through this book. It is not an easy book for a six-year-old to read, okay? I have to help her with a lot of words, but um, still, it's it's really uh, a good a good uh, story storybook book. A uh, Bible storybook, and it's huge, and it talks about a lot of stuff that most storybooks, Bible storybooks, don't include. They have this one on on lists and how God is uh, God that keeps track of details or whatever, because you have all the genealogies and stuff. So it talks about that. Uh, I didn't see the blessing of Jacob in there, so that was a little disappointing. But well, you know, we'll give him a pass on that one.
0: <laughs> okay, well, for my books in business, I. I am kind of reading a bunch of scattered things. Like I have have a stack of books I'm working through. Uh, Some of them are reserved for the out in left field summer. So I won't talk about those for a while.
1: I'm really excited about that.
0: Yeah. And uh, so I know last week on the show, I mentioned I had finished a paper that I'm submitting for one of my doctoral classes. I have another paper that's due a week from today that I've been working on for a while as well. And that one is on the idea of censorship and specifically, how should Christians view censorship in a public library or uh, the library of a school, even? And um, really hot-button issue, even in America, uh, the most popular book that has been uh, requested to be removed from libraries in the last 20 years. Anyone want to take a stab? Actually, it's probably like 20 to 25 years now.
1: Man, I— the I most
0: popular book I, and i'll i'll say outside of the bible being low, out of schools
1: yeah. i mean i would expect it wouldn't be like 1984 but no i don't know i have I wanna, no idea
0: I, 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 the uh, american the constitution
1: libra-
0: uh, no <laughs> the american library association ala um they actually put a list out so you can actually go and google this right now and find it i'm pretty sure like for quite a n- number of years there the number one book that was requested to be removed was harry potter Um, there are dozens of court cases where Harry Potter was asked to be removed by the conservative side of the, Hmm. uh, parent constituency. And then there's like a fight to get it back. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of a basis of my, my work is trying to look at the legal precedents of like what, what the arguments are legal arguments, uh, to keep it in, to remove it. And, um, just interesting, you know, uh, I think Christian conservative Christians usually are in the like free speech is always good category, and uh, but then realizing, you know, Harry Potter, for example, even in their school they censor material. Uh, they have a restricted section in their library, and you can't go in there until you're in, old enough.
2: In the in the movie series, in the book series, there's a restricted section. Yeah.
0: Well, no, it's it, yeah, it's it's well, in, it's in the both book. the book and the movie. Yeah. Huh. So. <laughs> The idea is that in the library at Hogwarts, which is fictional, they do censor the material for right. for the wizards and witches. Um, you know, they don't have a metaphysical structure for whether their magic is good or bad, but they do have <laughs> a restricted section uh in their library, but so that that's what I'm working on. Um, it's actually interesting how this has been an issue in religion, in politics, pretty much from the existence of civilization. I mean, going all the way back to the earliest Chinese dynasties, the Roman, the Greek empires, like these are these are issues of who can say what and where and how much can we punish them for it. And um, so, yeah, uh, a week from now, hopefully, I'll have a finished paper. Woo! Um, but uh, sneak peek. I do. I do argue that I think a Christian should be okay with the idea of censorship. Like, it's it's necessary to limit speech. It's just who is limiting it mm-hmm. is the key. So yeah, that's what I'm kind of working on. So a writing assignment. So
1: at least it's not controversial.
0: Yeah. I mean, no one has really any strong, opinions. real passionate nah. ideas on that. But anyway, you want to give us a preview of the episode?
1: Sure. Um, have you ever tried to use a tool from a toolbox and you're like, this is the dumbest tool in the world. It doesn't work and you don't like the tool or maybe it's something else in life. You've tried to use it. and It was bad. And then like years later, you either read the instructions or you see someone else using it properly and you realize, oh, he's using that backwards. And then after that, it's like the best tool or thing you've ever used. I want to ask you, I want to I talk about art and music today. And I want to bring up a point that perhaps the reason certain kinds of art and music don't appeal to us is we don't understand how they're being used. And so, the book that I'm going to refer to today, Art and Music Students Guide, walks through C.S. Lewis's idea of using art or receiving art. So, we talk about the use and reception of art. And if anything, it will open up your mind to think differently about some forms of art and music that perhaps you don't like. And it might end up being helpful for you.
0: I have to say, th- th- this is like something I've been thinking a lot about recently. And like, why certain songs to me are like, I'm air quoting nostalgic, you know, from a certain era of my lifetime. You know, I grew up; my dad was a farmer, so like certain country music songs make you feel a certain way, and then you know, from your junior high, high school, certain uh, insert genre here songs uh, affect you, and that like how the the word affect and affections Mm -hmm. just like go right with each other. And so I'm I'm excited for this episode. It's like we don't think about this enough.
1: Yeah, and I guess if you did have a barbecue stain on your white t-shirt, you might get kind of nostalgic too.
0: I'm not going to say the next line of that. Okay. <laughs> stop. I could. we If done. you're totally
2: lost, lost listener, to <laughs> you're in good company. It's okay.
0: I'm going to tell, tell an anecdote off the air, but enjoy this episode.
1: Let's have a conversation about art. Well, sort of. Who's art? <laughs> well, Art Kilmer, of course. Uh, no. Hello, Art, if you're listening. Uh, today, I was I've been reading this book, Art and Music Students Guide, um, and I I would highly recommend it. I've really enjoyed it. It's by Munson and Drake, and what they do is they walk you through how art works. I know you might think that's odd, like why do I need to know art works? But today we don't really under we don't really think about these things too much. Uh, they're going to offer some helpful uh, laying the foundation to understand it. So they, their first chapter is. What do, we mean, what do we mean by the word beauty? And the second chapter is, why should we enjoy art and music? In, those, in both of those chapters, there's spots where they're going to talk about the postmodern view of art, the classical antiquity view of art, and then the classical Christian view of art. So as you can tell, they're trying to decide like which one of these is the best. In chapter three, though, it says, how do we judge art and music? And here they're going to try to help us to understand how we can judge it. So as I was reading this, it was a really interesting book, and I would I would I would say it's one of those that if you're not really into art, you're not, and I'm not, I'm not. That's not something I'm naturally into. If you're not into arts, um, you know, orchestras, symphonies, paintings, that sort of thing, uh, this would maybe be a good book for you. It's going to be some Christian authors trying to help us to understand how those things work. The part that I think is maybe a gold nugget that we might want to talk about is the idea of using of using art and the idea of receiving art. So, in the book, when they talk about judging art, the authors bring up a concept from a C.S. Lewis book called *The Experiment* or *An Experiment in Criticism*. Now, here's a quick caveat. Even though that's not as good as Charlie's caveats, because I didn't say it forcefully. Uh, Lewis is not saying that one of these two methods of viewing or reading art is better. He's just trying to explain the difference between them. So Lewis is talking in his book Experiment and Criticism about how various people will like read a book and then they will judge it on some standard and critique it. And so he he was thinking about that subject. He was thinking about what are the standards by which people critique things and why do people have the conclusions or come to the conclusions that they do about various types of art. And he he thought there's, there's like two ways you can take advantage of art, we'll say. One is to use the art and one is to receive the art. So he sees the, those two options. So what I want to do is I want to explain those two, talk about them, and then I want to ask if that's, Essentially, I want to find out if this concept of use and reception would be a help to us Christians today. So in the book, Art and Music, uh, they explain, first of all, like what use is according to Lewis's definition. He says, there are many people out there who appreciate popular books. Oh, by the way, part of what Lewis is saying, I should bring in on this, is in his day he would see books that were very popular that would be read and passed around and be popular but they didn't have the same kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, endurance as some of the great classics. And so he started to ask this question, why, why is it that some books I can read them over and over and over again and actually benefit from them? And so he's attempting to answer that question. So in Art and Music, A Student's Guide, they said many people who appreciate those popular books seem to be using them for their own preconceived purposes. They, they desired the sensations of narrative excitement, say, or of suspense, or of vicarious happiness, you know, whatever it is. And understandably, they seek out books that will satisfy this desire as efficiently as possible with a minimum of expense and distraction. So if you think about that, that's kind of like a person who says, I'm going to be going on a long flight and I don't want to be sitting there bored on the airplane for eight hours. So I need a book to read. And because it's a long flight. I don't want to have to think too hard. I don't want to, like, I'm don't i not trying to like do work and study. I just want something that will occupy my interest, so I don't have to feel the boredom. So when they look for a book, they look for something interesting and exciting, that sort of a deal. Lewis says it like this. Um, he says when you use it, essentially what's going on is you're using that book for your own reason. And again, when Lewis says this, I don't think he's at this point making a moral judgment. He's simply pointing out this is how you use a book. You you take the book and you use it for what you want. He says there's not all those reasons are bad. Um, Sometimes you read a book as a diversion to pass the time. Sometimes uh, you select it for other reasons. So maybe I'm going to the doctor's office and I live before the age of cell phones. I bring a book because I'm going to sit there for twenty minutes and I don't want to be bored and look at the wall and stare at the ceiling. Uh, Maybe it's I I I I really have an intense job. I mean just a really intense job. And so when I come home, I want a way to escape the intensity of my life. And so I find a book where I can escape into another world and kind of spend some time taking a break from the life I live. So, okay, again, that's not a moral statement per se, but you can think about it. There are books, and I would even say there are there's types of art, there's types of visual media that we take advantage of because we're using them to give us things that we want. Now Lewis distinguishes this from a concept he's going to call reception, reception. So in this little guide I'm reading, Art and Music, it says it like this. It says, in contrast with the many, the popular books they're saying, there's also, there are other people who desire something more. They wish to receive, not just fulfilling their own preconceived purposes. They wish through books to discover new purposes for books, new to them, that is, purposes that they cannot anticipate. Here the idea is that you're, you're not looking at that book because it's going to give you something that you want. I mean, it, you do want something. I guess I would say like it's, a, it's both and. Yeah, you want to read the book. Yeah, you're interested. Yeah, all those things. But on top of that, you're aware there's something that the artist or the author wanted me to understand. There's something that the artist wanted me to know or to experience or to do or whatever. And while you're reading or viewing the work, you're also trying to see if you can take in what it is that the the author is offering you. So in a sense, for use, I'm using it for what I want. With reception, I'm trying to ask the question, what did the author want me to get out of it? Uh, Lewis describes it, uh, he, he describes it this way, oh sorry, I don't have that quote coming. So for the reception, he's the one who says you can receive it the way the author wants you to. Now there's a book called, it's a very we love the book around the table here. Well, two of us do. Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. And in the book, he gives a couple of pieces of advice early on. But one of the things that he says you should do when you're going to read a book is to ask, what is it that the author wants you to know? Or what is it that the author is trying to do? And I do think that's a very, very good question to ask. All right. So using Art is when it it does something that you want and you gravitate toward it to fulfill the thing that you want or desire. Reception in art or receiving is when you read the book or view the painting or watch the movie or whatever, read the poem, but you're looking at what is it the author wants to offer you and you're trying to receive that. So Lewis has this illustration, and this is what he thinks captures it. So here's the illustration. Now understand, he's writing this, I think this is in like the 40s at some point, so we have a couple of these things today, but he didn't in his day. A work of whatever art can be either received or it can be used. When we receive it, we exert our senses and our imagination and various other powers according to the pattern invented by the artist. When we use it, we treat it as an assistance for our own activities. The one, to use the old-fashioned image, is like being taken for a bicycle ride by a man who knows, who may know roads we have never yet explored. So you go on this bicycle ride and the man takes you, he kind of shows you places you've never seen. He says, the other is like adding one of those little motor car attachments to our own bicycle and then going for one of our familiar rides. These rides may themselves be good, bad, or indifferent the uses which the many make of the arts may or may not be intrinsically vulgar, depraved, or morbid, that's as they may be. Using is inferior to reception because art, if used rather than received, merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palatates our life. But it does not add to it. So I was trying to understand what he meant by the Putting a motor car on his bicycle. I'm and maybe I'm wrong on this, but it's almost like if you added a motor to your bike, like one of those electric bikes that has like a pedal assist. So, like, why do you go on the bike ride? It's like exerting energy. You're kind of getting out and around. Now, where this thing, where I think my understanding breaks down, is there's a guy who's a guide. Okay, so the guy guides you all the way around, okay, and you see new things. But then when I'm on my own, I just put the thing on, I don't do a ton of work and I get to go on my same route as always. So I think he's showing that like, if I'm following another bicyclist, I'm going where the, he wants to take me and I'm seeing what he wants me to see. And, and I don't know the motor car thing. It sounds like you're, you're having some self-effort uh, going on here. But then when you put the motor car on, you're kind of just going where you want to go, where you always go. So I think what he's trying to say is that artists may have something that they want to have done or have happened to you through their art. And if you're not looking for it, you might miss it. Okay, use and reception. So here's where, why don't you guys tell me, what the question I'm asking is, do you think this concept may be helpful for us today? What do you think?
2: The, I think that the concept is helpful today. Um, I was thinking more in the art form of music, uh, particularly like classical music. So as you're working through that, I was thinking through, I remember Roger Scruton, he had this little, uh, he had this little thing about pop music and how this pop music basically was just something that was felt, and how the the gen the current generation, whatever generation he was speaking to at that time, he's he was an old guy, but um, the current generation thought it was absolutely absurd that some old guy could sit there and just listen to a classical piece of music. And he explained how. Well, what is that classical piece of music doing? It's communicating something. Well, if it's saying something, if it's communicating something, then you need to actually sit and listen, and hear what the author is saying through the music. So I guess that's kind of as far as like something I was, that was registering with me as far as what was it using mm-hmm. and using and receiving receiving use
1: and reception.
2: And, and so, and so that's kind of at least some and a component of it that that I was processing through. I mean that that whole application has even gone beyond classical music, but even just personal worship and uh, personal worshiping the Lord in song, and how it's not just an emotional uh, feeling experience, but it's an intellectual thinking experience that then affects the emotions. It's not simply an intellectual thing either. But the but the the combination of the two is like a biblical pattern of worship, of shaping affections, of of uh of interpretation and explanation and authorial intent. So that's kind of where I was going with it. I don't know if that's exactly along the lines of what you were saying or yeah. Not sure exactly what our author intended.
0: <laughs> so a few thoughts with um so going back, you're talking about the classics, and just to connect or maybe disconnect a few dots, like Lewis is, was Lewis saying that the reason why some of the recent readings or uh, recent writings weren't becoming classics is like because they're geared towards this type of a reader, or is it like I don't know? Because like, yeah, you remember that part yeah. of the discussion.
1: So I, what I need to do is I, to really, so I'm, I'm reading Art and Music a Student's Guide and they're talking about Experiment and Criticism by Lewis and I've not read Experiment and Criticism except for like the first chapter or two. I think what, what Lewis is trying to distinguish between is why are some books read and reread multiple times and some books are read once to move on to read another book? Yeah, so I think I, it connects to the great Western classics, but I, I'm, it's a vague memory.
0: So, because then we, from that kind of thought, we went on to what the readers themselves doing. And I would actually answer that question, like, the classics are the classics because they're classics.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a circle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, like, so I, I could see, though, over time, authors recognizing that the taste is different. And they're not writing the same ways that people used to write, because they're not trying to create a classic. They're trying to create something that will be used. Yeah, like they're 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 writing on a popular level. But so, but I don't think that's what the direction of the text was really trying to say. I was listening to a video uh, of I don't know who the guy was doing the interview, but he was interviewing Jordan Peterson, and they were having a discussion about what books should you read and what makes something canonical this is good. and uh which that got uh interestingly enough uh friend of the show uh, josh boyd and i got on this the other couple of di- more than once we've got on this topic where we were like you know if you had to put a list together of books you would read before you die and uh you know what should go on that list or not and um Anyway, so then, and then he's working through a Doug Wilson book and Wilson has a list of 25 books that are canonical, you know, actually I can pull that list up right now because it's he
2: emailed it to me. Non-canonical, canonical canonical books.
0: Yeah, like canonical in the sense of not like revelation canon, but like-
1: The Star Wars canon is what it is. And
0: and, and Lewis- Horrendous. Wilson does have number one, obviously, of the canonical books is scripture. He includes that as one- which that become that always pops into conversations like this. Well, if you're going to create a book of ten books everyone should read before they die, well, the Bible's got to be on there, right? Well, of course, but we're not really in a discussion of like we're not we're not comparing the Bible as like a classic work of literature to other classic works of literature. Like it's Revelation, it's on a whole other plane. But so all all that to say is Peterson's thought. You know, roll up that ball of yarn.
1: Um, I love that phrase. Who did you get that
0: from? I'm pretty sure it's something that, it's either something that Boyd said in class and Sawyer Gogarty started saying around me, and I really liked it, so I started saying. Oh, squirrel. Or it was no, he, Sawyer saying it in class.
1: Boom, there goes Somebody that else.
0: rabbit. It was, it was some tie to <laughs> Josh Boyd somewhere.
1: No, I like, it's just, I wonder where it came from, that's all. It was squirrel. An, friend, of it? friend of the program,
0: friend of the program. Come on.
1: Um, Tim, you would be a terrible scroll anyway, so what
0: Peterson says is what puts something on that list of a classic, this is all going to come back to the, the comment we were talking about, is that it has a disproportionate amount of effect, A-F-F-E-C-T, a disproportionate amount of effect on other works. And that's mm. why the Bible has to be okay. canonical number one, because it has spurred and influenced more artistic writing than anything else. And so if It's like a. He also makes a comment about how you can't really judge this in the present time because you can't judge things as they're happening. That's where you put a historical eye on things. But historically, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you can see how many of the great thinkers who've written some of these books,
2: like Plato,
0: Augustine, Lewis, and Tolkien, some of these guys have all been heavily influenced by this one book, the Bible and how then maybe you should read it too. And that's what makes it a quote-unquote classic or to, depending on how you define the term canonical. But so I, w- I, don't, I don't know if the, the lack of classics that are being written is necessarily a tie to how the reader is searching for things, but as our cultures have progressed, I don't think uh, common authors today are trying to interact with the greatest conversations that have been had been happening for thousands of years. And they're trying to write something for use, not reception.
1: Yeah. Th- and I think that's the point. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like they're, they're, they're yeah. okay being popular, not being substantive.
1: And, th- and that's what people want yeah. today. We've and, trained ourselves to just, what do I so, want? And
0: so part of it, like, and it's this like cycle of what are, what are people buying? It's like, the, the marketability mm-hmm. of, yep. of the art of writing and, you know, you're you're never gonna get probably you're never gonna get a Tolkien like work again of Lord of the Rings. Why would someone come up with X amount of fake yeah. languages? Yep. Uh, you know, like I literally have multiple books in my library devoted to understanding the fake languages that Tolkien created as he wrote Lord of the Rings. Like, we'll never see that again. Like, people aren't trying to do things like that anymore, and because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. They don't, I mean, it's we're in a Twitter, Instagram culture where it's just like, I don't know if you could hear the popping of my lips there. Like it's me popping. And actually, the
1: best so. part too is that his hands are like popping up too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. Like popcorn. Tim's rolling yeah. <laughs> his eyes.
0: You think it's called popcorn because it pops?
1: It's also corn.
0: But it is also corn.
1: Oh boy, Tim. You feel like... <laughs> You you
0: look like you feel like you want to say something.
2: (laughs) I had something, but then we started talking about popcorn and how it came from popping and corn and whatever. Oh, I got it. It came back. Uh, There's candy corn. The connection with the timeless nature of literature and how the Bible is timeless. and The material that's produced today from a marketing perspective is not intended to be timeless. It's intended to sell quickly and then be gone. So that's why they print a whole pile of a book and sell them all and then they're gone. And if, sometimes if something sells well enough and has a higher, higher probability of selling again, then they keep it in print, but then it's put in print on demand and they just print them as they become available and raise
1: the price. So now take this whole thought. I would say that, so what are some benefits of knowing this distinction? I'll give you one. So for me, this goes back to when I read um, by James Sire the book How to Read Slowly, and he had that chapter on like how to read narrative and poetry and prose and that sort of thing. And I remember, I remember saying, I did not understand poetry because I was trying, and, and now I would say it this way, I was trying to use poetry, I wasn't trying to receive poetry. And what I mean by that is I thought every poem had to rhyme, and then I had literally no idea why you would write in poetic form at all. But he explained, this is what poets try to do. This is how they do it. It's almost like they purposely make it a puzzle. But then by, it's like, you know, there's different purposes. And so by him teaching me those, it's almost like the author had their own language and I didn't speak their language. And so when I heard them speaking, it was just a bunch of babbling. And I thought it was a poor quality. Once I understood what the authors were trying to do, I was able to receive that because I also wasn't coming to like look to be entertained or something like that. So I would say that I think this topic could help Christians along those lines uh, to where you begin to think, what is the author trying to do rather than what do I just want when I come to it? Could we illustrate
2: that maybe? Go ahead. Through our final thought from God's Word. Oh, I still have more. Okay. I oh, have, That was a beautiful transition. It
1: was a good transition.
2: Yeah, because I was going to look at some.
1: And you're not really good at transitions. That was po- a pretty good
2: segue for you.
1: Poetry. Oh. But you go ahead and you do. Oh, okay. yes. We'll come days. back to poetry then. That'll be a nice way to tie it together. And, okay. So uh, let's take this. Apply this to, let's just say, let's apply it to a college student. How would this affect a college student's mm-hmm. daily life as a student? What do you think, guys?
0: So, I mean, it's helpful that the, I don't know if it was a a colloquialism in Lewis's day to say something is being used, like in the sense that we, like to be used, like being taken advantage of in that sense. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it is, oh. but like we have that phrase very common, like, oh, you're just using me or, you know, you're using that thing. And so he's talking about use and reception, I wonder if that was why he used that term. Huh. Use like you're using it, and we kind of have that thrust of that phrase. That's intriguing. But so, think about what forms of you know, quote unquote art, which there's probably a better word for them, which is entertainment, that college students are using on a daily basis.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good.
0: And uh, so I'm thinking, like, typically, what would be you know traditional art forms, music. Uh, like the visual arts mm-hmm. of like photography or painting, mm-hmm. sculpting that type of stuff, acting. She's like, well, you know, I don't know the last time I went and saw a play. Well, you know, huh. we had one a couple of weeks ago, but um,
2: <laughs> it right, was good. When folks. is this gonna air? This, March fifteenth. Yeah. There's one coming up in a little
0: bit. <laughs> There'll be there's one coming up. Yeah, and uh, yeah, in either me. direction we nail the nailed timeless the guys. nature of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Reel that one back in. Okay, so but so the probably the most common area that interact with acting is they probably watch tons of movies, and mm-hmm. probably well over half of the people that listen to this have either a Netflix or a Disney Plus or a Hulu mm-hmm. or a YouTube or a who knows what's it. Yeah, uh, what's streaming service. Thing? Yep. If you're a fan of that one show, you probably have Peacock. Um, <laughs> but. And so, I don't. I don't. I do, I'll I. go on record. I do not. I have not watched it since it was taken off of Netflix. The show that shall not be named. Oh. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not even that bad. But no. Um. But that was a that was fine. bold office.
2: Anyway. Oof. Um, Oof. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's so a the third point, or point point fourth eye roll. The,
0: everybody. They they go to all of those mediums, streaming and music, which. I think it's just baffling how we don't talk about the aspect of music that is the music industry.
1: Oh, that's, yeah. That's Because a good like,
0: go back to Lewis. Even in Lewis's day, he couldn't just on his phone listen to any worship mm-hmm. song he wanted. Yep. And the reality is that most like, if people are really willing to think about why they listen to those worship songs. They're yep. not clicking to Spotify to worship. No. They're clicking to Spotify to be entertained. And they're using give give the author the the songwriters the musicians some benefit of the doubt that they are trying to do that sure yep more often than not that's yep. not what we're doing when we go to those songs mm-hmm. we're like you know especially the more popular ones because they make yep. us feel a certain way and the same with the movies and the tv shows and the whatever
1: you no know, that thought gets really scary when you start to think about a church service and why do i go to a church service yep that's another thought okay uh, so that that's good I was not going down that route. That's a really good thought well, that's that's what I was thinking. That's like, here's really all good these yeah,
0: quote unquote art forms, yeah that have been usurped as a form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. so traditionally, you go back a hundred years, you know, if you wanted to receive what they mm-hmm. were doing, you'd actually have to go somewhere to do it. yep, you'd have to go to the to the to you know whatever the orchestra hall or you'd have to go to the Theatre, gallery, depending on what religious stripe you're in, you may or may not have been doing that. Anyway, (laughs) after reading a book with Puritan thoughts in it, the theater, what, (laughs) acting out the Bible, what? Um, Anyway, um, but now you have all of that at like a few clicks of access, immediately, in perpetuity, and Mm. it's just like it's again like part of it is (laughs) that's what you want. But then that's affected what people produce mm-hmm. and producing things that cater to your wants. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really have big substantive works of art being made because people never care. Most people don't care.
1: It's totally going to affect the culture. Yeah. From a, another thought. So another thought on the student one. So if I, so here, let's go back to, um, let's go back to my example of poetry. What if I what if what if I was in a lit class and I was required to read a book on poems and it had like a bunch of example poems and I didn't understand how poems worked, what how would I judge that textbook? Personal taste. Personal taste?
0: I didn't like that one. Yeah. It I was boring. Or you would read your own ideas into what you're yeah. reading. yeah, And they're like, oh, I like this poem because it means this, and you could be completely missing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Were you going to say something? Okay, so what I was thinking about it is we were talking about, I think last week we talked about Roy Zuck's basic Bible interpretation. And there are some dense books you read at college. And if you don't understand what the book is trying to do and you try to read it, you won't like the book. But is it because the book was wrong? Or is it because I came to the book wanting to be entertained and wanting some practical thing? And the book's saying, okay, we gotta think deeply. Here's what I want to do. It was just it was intriguing because I think what Lewis is saying essentially is we need to give the author the author's intention fair airtime. So it's it's not that I can't value parts of a painting that are beautiful because I like the colors or something like that. I'm not saying that. But if I know that. Certain time periods of painting have certain motifs and certain um, behind them goals that the authors or the painters are doing. Then, if I don't recognize that, I'm just looking at the art. And it's the same thing with books and it's the same thing with classes. Here's this teacher doing this thing. Do I really care? Think about it in a workplace. I'm going to on the job training. I'm going to some seminar. I'm going to some meeting. I don't want this. This is not entertaining. So, the whole use reception thing seems like am I doing what I want for me or am I submitting and I'm humbling myself and I'm listening to what the artist says? Anyways, cool. jump in.
0: So I just realized that you're, you're spot on giving, giving that fair, the fair yeah. airtime to the author's intent. But because the, then you started talking about books and you brought up Zuck and I'm, my thought was I just listed a whole bunch of art forms where as a culture our best not to generationally divide. We'll just say we as a culture mm-hmm. we gravitate to things that we want instead of maybe what we need or what's truly valuable. And in that list of all those forms of entertainment, what did I not mention? Books, written yep. things that are written. And as an art form, that's historically why it is superior. Yeah. to all other art mm-hmm. forms because art is communication and words communicate far better mm-hmm. usually. And brushes Mm -hmm. and notes on a page. They communicate different things, but as a a communication mechanism for a message, something written is so much more powerful, can be so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And how that same phenomena happens with written things, Mm -hmm. even theologically, Mm -hmm. that students are driven to read things that they're entertained by, and they don't realize why they're entertained by it and who wrote it to them mm-hmm. th- their view of the person who wrote it as a popular or trendy or relevant person mm-hmm. plays into whether or not they're entertained by its thoughts yep and like they, they're given over to the art form that that person's writing and but they they for that same reason when they turn to someone of a stripe or theology or just a maybe they're in their own eyes is too boring or outdated. They don't give it the fair rub.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Like yeah.
0: I, and I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Like how that's probably the greatest error of this stripe that happens at our college. Mm-hmm. It's not probably with the visual arts. It's probably with the written one.
1: And I, and I would say that I think it happens in probably all contexts because it's a culture wide thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I'm, you're not, I'm not, you're not saying that. But, um, but it is intriguing to like think, so I remember I had an assignment that Dr. Paul gave us, I think you probably did it, the, to go to the museum in Western Civ or whatever. Yep. And I remember going and just looking at everything, but I had no understanding of what any of that was trying to do. Now, granted, sorry, listener, if you're a modern art fan, plug your ears or don't and hear the truth. Modern art stinks. And so anyway, I'm I'm just kidding. But it's not as... No, you're not. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, seriously, you go to, go, to, go to a museum. Like, I went to Louisville Museum when I was down there one time and go progressively through the ages. You know, start in the, you know, I don't know, Middle Ages and just walk forward in time. And it, it's not like it gets... Like, you get to, like, about the 1850s and it starts to all fall apart. But at the same time, not that stuff that, you know, it's just postmodern pictures and visuals and all that. The older stuff i do think there's probably something going on if you had a little bit of training you probably have a better access to what the author's trying to do and so it might be the same way for books it might be the same way for the bible let's talk about the bible
2: a work of art let's look at words on a page psalm 15. so here's our final thought from god's word lord who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So in Psalm 15, we have poetry, and poetry is intended to make us think. People often don't like Hebrew poetry because, or just any kind of poetry, uh, because it's not clear, it's cryptic, and they don't know what it means. In fact, as I read that, what did any of it mean? probably puzzled right now. It's just like, I don't remember. I've already forgotten. Nothing connected. Nothing hit. Well, that's why, because poetry is intended to make you think. Consider the first words in, or the first verse, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? What is this figure of speech? A rhetorical question. You could unmute and interact with me if you want, but it's intended to make you think. It's, it's a rhetorical question. Who may abide in your tabernacle? The second, Uh, sentence, the second phrase in that same verse, who may dwell in your holy hill? Again, a rhetorical question. And so this asks us and makes the reader pause, makes the reader think, oh, who can have fellowship with God in his special place of presence, his divinely place, his divine place, the tabernacle, the holy hill? Oh, who can? Who can draw near to God? This is a liturgy at the gate. And connecting to the whole idea, the theme of art and music, to the concept of worshiping God. Well, what is the act of worship? But drawing near to God. Well, who can do that? Who is it that can abide in the tabernacle or dwell in the holy hill? Interestingly, the psalm ends with, He who does these things shall never be moved. Another verb that describes motion. Somebody's wanting to live, abide, dwell in a specific location near the Lord. And the person that does these things does not move out of that location. They are settled, they are steadfast, they are established. Where? Near God. As a liturgy at the gate, this psalm particularly struck me because it helped me in understanding. It helped me in defining righteousness. Now We don't think of a definition of righteousness. What is right? What is wrong? We just kind of always have said, right is right. Well, what is right? Our world has a very different idea of righteousness. In this text, God is the one that establishes what righteousness is. And the one who dwells near his holy hill is the one who is righteous. Look at verse two. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. There's your word it's righteousness. Well, what does this person do? They walk a specific way. Their walk, their lifestyle is an upright lifestyle. Then the third description in verse two they speak the truth in his heart. Okay, so it's not just that you do the truth or you speak the truth in words, but your very desire is for the truth. The truth is something that stems from within. The descriptions continue as this definition of righteousness, the one who dwells near the Lord, is found in verse 3. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. These three descriptions all relate to one's relationship to others. How do you relate to others is connected to how you relate to God. You wish to be steadfast, immovable, close to the Lord. Well, how do you treat others? I'm flying through this, but verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Interesting. When we see a vile person, often... We respond with envy, jealousy. Wow, look at all the good things that they have. But the righteous person does not do that. They actually despise them. Wow, they have that, but their life stinks. Why? Because they're not close to God. But honors those who fear the Lord. A contrast between the vile and the one who fears God. In this final description in verse 4, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's a very practical, um, uh, a practical, very, very this worldly. Like, oh man, you know what? I told this person I would do such and such. I don't really want to do it anymore. Boy, I made this business deal, but boy, I'm really gonna get taken. It's gonna be a bad deal. Well, guess what? The person that is near to God does. They honor their oaths, even when it hurts themselves. In verse 5, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. It's related to the Deuteronomic law and how they were not supposed to take advantage of the poor. This is Psalm 15. This is what righteousness is. This is poetry. What is that poetry supposed to do? It's supposed to make us think. And in making us think, it shapes our affections. It helps us to see who God is, who we are, and then how we should live our life in this sin-cursed world.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.